welcome to Estradile Illusions. We are back in Westeros, a place uh, I always love revisiting. I know everybody, uh, especially longtime listeners of the show, we got our start doing weekly re- roundtable recaps, which were uh, probably the uh, not necessarily the best learning curve for a, a brand new podcast back in 2019, but uh, we we figured it out. We had a lot of fun doing it, and I sometimes I miss those uh, recording times with uh, four separate people and have, learning to edit all of that stuff, but. We are back, and we have a very exciting guest here to talk to, uh, with us about a brand new study that he was a part of. And I want to introduce uh, Professor Colm Connaughton. Uh, Colm, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, and thanks for uh, having me on the show. So my name is Colm Connaughton. I'm actually a professor of applied mathematics, of all things, at the University of Warwick in the UK. And I'm here to talk about... Uh, a recent study that we did uh, applying some uh, sort of mathematical, statistical, data science tricks to the narrative structure of A Song in Ice and Fire. Yes, so the, the study is, I'm going to read the title for every, uh, long-time listeners of the show know that pretty much every time I get pitched an academic, if it's a field that I can keep up with, uh, love to have uh, people on to have, I mean, the beauty of podcasting is, you know, you don't, you don't reduce things to little uh, one or two minute bits and you get to really dive into the material. The, uh, the article is called narrative structure of a song of ice and fire creates a fictional world with realistic measures of social complexity, which for, one of the things I get asked by uh, people who are sort of casual fans of the show is, how is this fandom so sustainable when the last major book came out 10 years ago, uh, excluding all the supplemental material and all of that stuff, and yet the fandom, new podcasts, new uh, fan websites, all of that are uh, coming up constantly, and I, I think the heart of your article really kind of helps us explain why this this world that George R. R. Martin created is is not only incredibly um, there's a lot of depth to it, but at the same time, it's also something that that in a lot of ways does in fact mirror our own life. Yeah, that's exactly right, and I think that was one of the questions that was in our mind when we started to do this in the first place. So several of us on the team. Well, we, 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 we are fans either of the TV show or, like myself, fans of the books. It feels like an awful long time since the last book came out, but somehow we're all hopeful. So I think, um, I think you know, one of the things just sort of at a, at a, at a human level is uh, obviously there's a whole load of cliffhangers in there that we're hoping to get resolved. So that uh, sort of goes, goes kind of some way to, I think, explaining the longevity of this. But that wasn't really the thing that we were interested in initially. Um, Rather, we were interested in just this question of the scale and why it is that it really works at all. Because uh, as anyone who's read through the books or follows the TV show knows, there's really a huge number of characters uh, and a huge number of interwoven plot lines. And actually, you know, us being kind of mathematically minded and statistically minded people, we, we counted. And there's... Over two thousand named characters in the in the, the five books of the of the epic, and when you try to look at the social network of interactions among those characters, we counted over forty thousand of them. So when you get to those kind of numbers, there's really this. You think, well, this story could just become completely incomprehensible. I mean, this will be entirely unfathomable to the readers. But actually, that's not really the case. And people have become real devotees of this. And we wanted to understand really why that is. Yeah, I think it's one of those things. I remember when my when my sister was uh, starting to read the books, um, I think she was around 14 or 15 at the time. She was... Um, Originally, I said, well, you know, if you're confused with some characters, especially she was somebody who started off with the show and then went to the books. And I said, well, if you're confused, um, you know, just go uh, go look in the appendix. And, uh, you know, there's there's a they list all the characters because a lot of the characters he uh, George R. R. Martin bucks a popular literary trend of don't give characters the same name. 
And even like I've been, I've had manuscripts and an editor says, you know, change this name. They both, uh, another character's name starts with a similar letter. And when you're dealing with 2000 characters, that's not at all, uh, feasible. But I think something like the game of, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire appendix is, uh, really intimidating because, um, there's all these, it's kind of like an information dump. It's, it's, it's useful in some ways, but not a good starting point at all. And sort of something that is, uh, definitely really scary to a lot of, uh, first sort of first time readers. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think the, um, the, 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 the point that we would like to, or the proposal which we have made in, in our study is that that's not really the way you should approach uh, a song yeah. of fire. You shouldn't really think of it as a list of uh, several, you know, hundreds of important characters that you have to memorize everything in order to be able to follow. Because it seems that Martin really structures the narrative in a way that sort of keeps it cognitively reasonable for us with the in the sense that the degree of complexity or the, um, you know, the number of characters that you need to keep track of at any one moment in time in the story is commensurate with what we are experienced with dealing with in real life. So one of the proposals that we've made is that this is part of what allows a song of ice and fire to remain comprehensible despite the fact that just from the raw numbers, you might think that it could very quickly just get completely out of hand and uh, something that you just put down out of sheer frustration. So we connected. I mean, some of the people on the team are, 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 are psychologists uh, who have actually looked at um, the limits of our own brains in terms of the number of social interactions that we can maintain and keep track of at any one moment in time. And we were both amused and satisfied to find that actually in Martin's writing within a song of ice and fire, these limits tend to be uh, respected. So it's not quite as, uh, it's not quite as, as, as difficult to grasp as, as it might be. One thing that the article does uh, towards the beginning that I, I really appreciated uh, is is it acknowledges sort of the the broader uh, when you when you talk about a song of ice and fire to first time reader or people who have just engaged with it or or just engaged with the show kind of this um, thing that people say is oh you know everybody dies in a song of ice and fire like oh that's the series where they kill everybody. And as as your article notes, and as as sort of anybody who spends a lot of time with the series knows, that's that's not really true. But it it, it speaks to a broader uh, success, something that George R. R. Martin does quite well of creating uh, sort of an aura of unpredictability, while also at the same time, you know, definitely adhering to a lot of the narrative structure and literary uh, structure that that anybody who's read a single other book would would be aware of yeah that's right and that's the other sort of strand to the work which we did which i think personally i found perhaps even more interesting i mean on the one hand we we looked at these properties of the in-story social network uh, but we also looked at the way in which the narrative is structured in terms of the order and the pacing at which events unfold and in particular, we compared the the order and pacing of events as measured in the fictitious in-story timeline. So essentially the, the clock on Westeros or the calendar uh, as experienced by the characters in the story. And we compared that to the order and pacing of events, in particular the significant deaths, uh, as measured in the what what we call discourse time, which is the pacing as experienced by the reader. So the time measured in the passing of pages and chapters. And these are, of course, quite different. I mean, as we know, some of the books uh, happen concurrently. So so things don't don't have to be in the same order by these two measures, and they don't have to be paced in the same way. And so what we found was that the pattern of significant deaths as measured in the in-story timeline was perhaps not so unlike pattern of patterns of events which one sees in the real social world in terms of lots of other types of human activities, maybe less violent 
Um, but you know, they tended to cluster. So things kind of happen. You know, if you if if you observe something happening, it's likely that um, this is going to happen again soon or or not. But in contrast, when we looked at the pacing and patterns of events in discourse time, so as experienced by the reader uh, in terms of chapters and pages, we found that the pacing really looked very different. And in particular, we showed using some mathematical tricks that there's a sense in which the significant deaths in discourse time are sort of maximally random and maximally unpredictable. So there's this sort of dichotomy between a sort of a very a realistic narrative as presented with the in-story timeline, coupled to this very unpredictable order in which these events are prevent, presented to the reader. So in a sense, I felt this... I felt quite vindicated myself when I saw this because I remember myself being being shocked by some of the turn of events, particularly early on in a Game of Thrones when I was essentially uh, I, I didn't I wasn't knowing what to expect in the writing, and I particularly remember Eddard's death in the first book, thinking, "My goodness, this writer is crazy! You're not allowed to do this." But then, of course, as 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 the story went on, you become accustomed to this particular style of, of Martin. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, I, I can only think of what a daunting task it would be to, uh, examine the timeline from that perspective, especially when you consider that for a lot of the point of view characters, you know, especially more toward the, the later books as, as they, uh, as there become more of them. But, uh, you know the, the the fact that some of these characters, like I'm thinking of, of Daenerys in particular, is essentially kind of having her own sort of con- concurrent story that's happening uh, in Asos, completely independent of uh, for uh, the first two books at least, uh, which are more Stark heavy. You've got a character who's essentially having her own concurrent narrative somewhere else, and that also kind of you you have to build a narrative within that narrative that also makes sense within the broader narrative of the giant thousand page book. So when you're dealing with something like um, Daenerys is, uh, well, in a game of Thrones, she has like the two most significant deaths. And that would be uh, the death of her brother Viserys, which kind of uh, provokes a, a, a turn in, in how she views herself uh, in relation to the Dothraki and becoming Khaleesi and all of that. And then of course the death of Khal Drogo, which happens kind of more at the end of uh her narrative within a Game of Thrones, and you know, you're you're part of what keeps people turning the pages is the sense that anything could happen in each page. And then when you kind of take a bird's eye view, it's like, okay, this is traditional storytelling at the same time. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's right, and it's a sort of um, the the you know one, an, an interesting question is to think uh, you know to what extent uh, Martin himself is is aware of. These the, the, these distinctions. I mean, my my feeling is that you know he he's he's not thinking about this like a data analyst, but nevertheless, he somehow subconsciously is adhering to a lot of these uh, sort of um, rules, which help to make the story really what it is. And the main success, I think, of his writing is that really this this ability to marry a, a, a sense of believability and realism with uh, a pacing and ordering which keeps the narrative engaging across really kind of vast timescales uh, both you know in terms of just number of pages but also the the, the the gaps between the books that just keeps people waiting oh yeah that's uh i mean that if you look at like the the, the fandom from from like 2010 2011 to now the People just get angry if you say, like, when, when's the next book coming out or book speculation or all of that. And I'm thinking, like, George R. R. Martin himself was definitely aware of, of these timeline issues. He begins uh, A Storm of Swords, the third book, with a uh, – he prefaces it by saying, look, some of these chapters will be happening at the same time. Uh, with, throughout A Clash of Kings, there's a red comet that Daenerys sees going across the – I'm pretty sure it's the Dothraki Sea – and other characters kind of later on 
experienced the same phenomenon uh, somewhere else. And the the big question is, you know, what what is the timeline of this? And I mean, if you take like a, a, a broad broad perspective of, of the timeline, you know, so there's kind of a, a distinction that needs to be made between you know, important book events that obviously shape everything else and then other events that kind of uh, tend to serve more of, you know, uh, sparking uh, fan theories. Like um, a couple years ago, some fans uh, put put together a... trying to make a map that addressed the theory. There's a popular fan theory that listeners will be aware of where people were trying to say, is Euron Greyjoy, Theon's uncle, the evil uncle, uh, is he secretly hiding as Dario Naharis, Daenerys's rather eccentric uh, paramour in, in ASOS. And this massive timeline is drawn. And, I mean, you, you could kind of debunk it from, from, from a logic standpoint, like why is this character going around masquerading as somebody else? But you look at the timeline, I mean, you can make a pretty convincing case for something like that. And I guess that's kind of why this fandom is so fun. Yeah, and I think, uh, yes, since many of your listeners will be sort of involved in this fandom. One of the things which I should say is that our work actually relied very heavily on this kind of work, which is done by people uh, who are fans of the series, because in order to construct the in-story timeline, we used uh, a, a timeline which had been compiled by by a community of, uh, of fans on Reddit. And, you know, we, we somehow compiled the... The, the the discourse time uh, events ourselves, but in order to be able to compare to this this in story timeline, we we leaned very heavily on on the work of of the fandom. So it's it's, it's just uh, interesting to to kind of um, see that you know, these things somehow can feed into uh, your kind of scientific <laughs> work as well. Um, but on yeah, that particular we- point about uh, you know whether you can you know I think I think you know one of the one of the things which people have pointed out uh, quite you know I, I have not myself been involved in 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 the online communities so much but I did read some of the discussions just to understand how to interpret these various timelines and obviously there it seems there's quite a lot of um, quite a lot of um, controversy over the, some of the orderings and some of the dates and when exactly certain things happen because Martin himself never provides a definitive uh, calendar timeline. But um, it is something, you know, th- those uncertainties sort of put a limit on how much detail we could really say in, ab- about the, the the pacing of events. You know, there's sort of a, there's a, period of time below which we can't really discern so we've kind of mapped things we've attempted to map things to the nearest day but there are certain days in the in the story of course where a huge amount happens and you know the, this this day may take you know 10 chapters uh, of, of the book and we can't really resolve what's going on below that well, the, the the challenge that you just described was something that that really caused a lot of these uh, literary delays. The um, there's a fandom uh, phenomenon that dis- I, maybe George R. R. Martin coined it himself. Um, the it's called the Miranese Knot, and basically George R. R. Martin had to keep rewriting the book uh, in A Dance with Dragons, basically because a timeline. There's kind of a convergence of. Um, Stuff that's leading up to the the battle of fire, the battle for Marine, because um, right now Danny is it, Daenerys is in the Dothraki Sea, but there's a lot of there are, there are currently, and they have been traveling for you know ten years since the last book came out. There are a lot of very important characters all heading to see Danny and Marine, who of course is not even there at this point. But um, George R. R. Martin had to constantly rewrite the book t- to place these certain characters in in a certain order you know you have the Greyjoys. you have uh Tyrion is going there you have Art- well he's outside the camp right now uh with the the Winds of Winter sample chapters which of course he's released some of the some of the next book uh years ago and who knows what will what will remain but it's 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 this huge cluster that not only causes uh fans grief causes petitions uh grief it also uh probably no no person more so than the author himself it's it's really it's tricky stuff 
Yeah, absolutely. And one point which I guess I should make is that at least from our analysis up to the point, you know, we tried to track over time, as in over the development of the books as as the chapters unfolded, how the how the structure of the narrative was evolving. And we saw two things. One is that it in terms of the complexity of the narrative itself, this is largely now talking about measures of the structure of the social network of interactions among characters. This kind of stabilized pretty quickly early on in book one and didn't continue to become more and more complex as the story evolved. But so, so there's a kind of a sense in which the, the degree of complexity of the story sort of plateaued early on and then stays more or less consistent uh, throughout the, the rest of the books. Having said that, however, the number of characters which is in, which are have been introduced just continues to grow more or less sort of proportional to the length of the books. So as, as the more chapters there are, the more characters have passed through. With the Marinese not they uh, all these different characters are going to are on their way to Marine, and uh, th- that caused at least a couple of years of delays. and And when you look at, I mean, I don't want to talk. There's a there's kind of a, a broader problem. I mean, we don't we don't exactly know what's causing all of the different delays with the winds of winter. But um, I mean, there's dozens I could list. But but part of it is is you've got this uh, uh, convergence of all these different characters, and you know George R. R. Martin is trying to really carefully place it. And some of the stuff, like, you've got to wonder, uh, especially with the just the broader uh, politics, there's a lot of wars going on in, in ASOS, and you've got to wonder from a, a reader's perspective how much of this matters. And a lot of your study is kind of trying to, uh, you know, presents kind of the conclusion that, um, you know, it, it's okay that there's a lot of this complexity. I mean, there's, it's almost like there's levels of the, the series that you can engage with, but if you just want to stay at the top level and be, like, just a, a casual fan you're not completely blocked off from that. Now, that's right. And one of the things that we looked at uh, initially, that we, you know, one of the questions we were interested to sort of ask was whether there's any signature in the structure of the narrative about how this series is progressing. And what we found, just sort of, there's kind of two things that we looked at. I mean, one was just structural properties of the network of social interactions, you know, how that was evolving as chapters pass. And what we found was that actually the structure of the network stabilized pretty early on in book one and hasn't continued to grow in complexity as further books have been added to the epic. So that was one thing that we sort of thought, well, okay, so it seems like it's kind of steady state in some sense uh, in terms of how complicated it's going to get, at least from that perspective. But we also looked at how the total number of characters that have entered the narrative was growing uh, with chapter or with time. And we found that this was more or less growing proportional to time. So, so kind of uh, that there are just the more books there are, the more, chap- the more, um, the more characters there have been. And so somehow that, that was interesting that somehow the, the, although the, 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 men, the, the cast of minor characters entering and leaving the narrative seemed to just be continually expanding, the actual complexity of the network of their interactions was fairly stable over time. But we didn't really see any, any indication that things were drawing to a close from either of these two measures. So by the end of... Um, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, you know, both trends were continuing more or less uh, as they had done uh, for, for, for the previous uh, number of books. And so if there was any kind of sense structurally in the narrative that this unpicking of the Miranese knot was going to, was, would somehow lead to a kind of uh, drawing the, the thing to a close, uh, that's not evident, at least from the perspective that, that we looked at the narrative through. So it will be really interesting to see what happens with the next uh, couple of books, uh, whether it just somehow ends or really does draw to a, a kind of a um, a neat conclusion. Well, that's kind of I mean, I, I when people uh, when I when I talk with people about they say you know when's the next book going to come out and then 
according to the original, uh, well, so, something something resembling the original plan. Um, you can, I mean, there's there's uh, anthology books that George R. R. Martin uh, contributed to in the '90s that have a whole different. I think the franchise, the series was supposed to be at one point four books, and then A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons got split because it was too big. Big question is, can he finish this whole series in two books? Uh, I mean, from from reading your study, I'm kind of reminded uh, of the the idea that that that's probably not feasible with the way things are going right now. That that, that there certainly doesn't look to be any. Um, yeah, I guess I really, you know, I would say, of course, that we have looked at this from very particular perspectives, and we you know, we see that probably there are certain things that one can tell uh, from reducing. Uh, what's really an excellent uh, story to to a bunch of of numbers and interactions and so on. Uh, Of course, you know, you don't capture in that the really the thread of what is ever going on in those interactions. So, you know, that goes without saying, you know, I would never say that we can see the full picture. But, um, you know, we certainly don't see much from from the kind of numbers perspective that, that things are close to wrapping up. And I think one thing your numbers, uh, I, I was thinking constantly about uh, House Frey in particular in, in relation to, um, there's a one point of your study that, that kind of um, the, the average number of characters per chapter is uh, 35 now that, uh, you know, there's certain, cha- you know, that's an average, so, so some chapters are, are, have fewer and then uh, some have uh, uh, far beyond that, but you, you you make a a point that you know there there's the 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 number at thirty five is is also kind of um, representative of of the amount of relationships that that people can kind of comfortably have at one time uh, paraphrasing, but like I'm thinking of House Frey where you've got this really old guy in his nineties who has twenty seven legitimate children, uh, potentially dozens of bastards who and and there's just endless endless problems and i think your study kind of says well yeah if if this this book is really realistic and we can draw like a sort of natural conclusion from yeah obviously walder the way that walder frey has lived his life has has bred all of this uh anger and anxiety among his heirs who are, are really all just kind of waiting for him to die yeah so the the phrase were an interesting case actually i mean the um I don't want to go kind of too much into the sort of technical details uh, of what we were doing, but this one of the things which we did want to do was to use um, various measures of what people in network science call centrality to get a sense of whether one can identify the key characters solely from their positions and their, their patterns of connectedness from within the social networks. And so this worked kind of pretty well. I mean, this was one of the things that uh, somehow made the study interesting uh, from from a scientific perspective is that these sort of algorithmic measures of importance uh, picked out more or less clearly the point of view characters, which is what you'd hope that would correspond to a good measure of importance. But several of them, however, some of these measures were really thrown off by the tight knot of interconnectedness associated with uh, the Frey family in particular. And, and so this is, I, I don't know if you, if you got as far as looking at some of the stuff in the, in the sort of supplemental material that went with the article, but we do actually discuss uh, in particular, this, there's a measure of importance called eigenvector centrality, which really didn't work terribly well, unlike many of the others. Um, and, and the reason was it kept, it, it showed up a, a whole load of Frey's and, um, and, and this was really essentially a, a kind of a reflecting the fact that the phrase themselves are, a, a, you know, they're an atypical part of the network in many respects because they're, they're really like a little knot where they all know each other. And so this overinflates their importance um, by, by some algorithmic measures. Yeah, and, and I guess kind of uh, uh, if, we, if we look at it more from a, a literary perspective, kind of the, the opposite of, when you're dealing with a character like like Daenerys, who at this point in the books has not met another major, certainly not a, a point of view character, Tyrion is on her way to her. Um, well, he's on his way to where he thinks she is, and now she's gone somewhere else. I mean, that even continues. But Barristan Selmy 
who pops up uh, a lot in your study in terms of um, betweenness, centrality, and all of that uh, ranks pretty high. Um, you know, you, you you think that sort of subconsciously part of why George R. R. Martin sent Barristan from the King's Guard to, uh, I guess. They met up at Slaver's Bay, or no? They met up outside of Carthage. They he, he goes to see her at. Uh, they meet up in the the second book, and at that point, he's posing as uh, Arston Whitebeard. But it would almost make sense, like you'd almost have to send somebody who knew the other characters to Daenerys because you just you couldn't go five books with this person that disconnected from everybody else. I guess. Right, and that is that structure of the separation between Daenerys's arc and everything that's going on in Westeros is something which, uh, you know, is ex extremely clear from, from the network uh, analysis. Uh, of course, we're not the first people to point this out. I mean, you know, several, many people have, have sort of done studies of various kinds, looking at the social networks in, in, in um, A Song of Ice and Fire and other mythological or fictitious epics. But, um, you know, Barristan himself is really sort of, yeah, he, he's a very, in, he's a, an interesting node in the network in the sense that his betweenness centrality is really high because he, and he really is the link between uh, everything that's going on in, in Essos and everything that's going on in Westeros. And Danny actually, by many of the measures, comes out as being actually not so important by centrality measures for, for the reason that she does spend most of the books kind of disconnected from the main action uh, on, on, on Westeros. Yeah. And uh, I was, I was also kind of just um, reminded um, I was thinking of Sudani uh, towards the end of uh, her arc in a clash of Kings visits the house of the undying. And there's all these uh, prophecies, some of which, and, and, and this is also kind of where the timeline of, of when the books were written clash of Kings, I want to say was written in, 96, I want to say, and A Dance with Dragons comes out uh, in 20, 2010-2011. A character like, well, the character that, that, that is presented as Aegon Targ Targaryen, it's kind of a open uh, question of whether or not he's actually the legitimate. Um, he's referenced in the second book as uh, the, the Mummer's Dragon by, in the House of the Undying, uh, kind of referring to uh, the fact that, that Varys is kind of the political force propping him up. And the, 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 the complexity of something like that where you're dealing with um, how, how do these epics kind of plot and then bring in characters who are now... Um, I mean, that, that kind of also connects to the fact that um, the, the big arc of the second book, The War of the Five Kings, each one of the five kings was not really... They're all important figures, but they're also not important characters within the story, with the one exception kind of being... Well, two exceptions being uh, Rob Stark and Stennis Baratheon. But, you know, Rob Stark has a big network for obvious reasons, and yet the book goes out of its way to downplay his importance overall, something the show doesn't... Yeah, I think that you know the, you've actually picked out the two. Uh, you know, these two characters really do stand out in the in, in the in the network because they end up looking like important characters by these various algorithmic measures, but they're actually not point of view characters in the end. And um, and so that's uh, you know that that's certainly a kind of you know that observation very much reflects uh, what what uh, what we see um, the overall you know I, I think the, the other point in terms of importance which I think was a little bit interesting from the study is that we distinguished between characters who are in the network because of you know so essentially we consider a link between two characters when one speaks to or about the other. So characters like Ned, for example, and King Robert, even though they die in the first book, continue to have very important, you know, they continue right. to be important characters throughout the narrative, not because they do much, but just because many other characters speak about them and do things based on recollections of interactions with with Robert or with Ned so so it's sort of actually quite 
interesting to see that that there is you know it's not just the it's not just the kind of the characters that are currently in the running so that are influencing the story you know you really see that even the ones which have moved along or passed away can continue to have influence well yeah i mean that that also just makes me think of um there, there there's some parts in um a feast for i mean characters travel through the riverlands a lot the riverlands within like the map of westeros are kind of a, a, a central location but um you know, you you hear these like uh, a lot, some of the common folk sort of say like uh, King King Ares is uh, they they kind of miss the Mad King who you know as readers were taught is or is really terrible and yet at the same time uh, stuff like that's kind of a reminder of you know for all the sense of how connected all of these characters in our story are um, you know there's all these other characters who have have perceptions and and uh, of them that that is is night and day from what we're necessarily supposed to believe which isn't to say that Ares is a good king but that you know the the pursuit of a better king is coming at a great cost to other people well that, i guess that's uh, somehow something which reflects the real world too right i mean a lot of right often you know with a lot of conflicts in the real world the easy part is getting rid of the the old yeah the old bad guy uh, and Iraq, you know, I think yeah. you know we see, you know, I guess you know this is not so much uh, sort of uh, about politics, but you know, without if you don't have a clear plan of what comes next, it's not clear that it will be better to get rid of the old Mad King, because the the, the, the process of replacing him may itself uh, be not so so great. Um, but just I want to sort of pick up on that comment. You know, you, you comment on kind of characters uh, like the the Mad King who you know, really enters the story only through the recollections of others and the mentions of right. others. And, you know, there are characters, one of the things which we do see, which I think kind of reflects real life in other ways, is that you don't really know the importance of a character necessarily at the time. It's only over, only over the development of the narrative that it becomes clear who the key players are. And, uh, you know, it's, so someone like Barristan Salmi, for example, is pretty minor character at the beginning, but actually turns out to be over time extremely important because not necessarily because of us, him being particularly central in the great families or whatever, but just because he happens to be the one who ends up connecting uh, the West with the East. Well, I, I just like in terms of Barristan, you you know, Ned is still very important, even though he's dead. Barristan brings like a whole nother layer. Like there's a whole fandom that that really supports uh, a character like Ashara Dane, who might be alive, might not be alive, but hasn't appeared in the book so far. And yet is the subject of great infatuation by both Ned in the first book when he's a point of view character, but then also by Barristan in the fifth book when he's a point of view character. So it's all just like this very interconnected web. That's so fascinating all and you have these characters who we don't actually know much about existing as, as, as sort of central figures in all of this. Yeah. And as I said, we do see that the, the, somehow the cast of characters is growing continuously, more or less at a constant trend right up to the end of uh, a dance with dragons. So it's kind of interesting as, as just as a reader to think, you know, whether some of the key players in the winds of winter have already been introduced to us in some minor capacity, but we don't really, we won't really define their true importance until we're able to look in retrospect and think, ah, actually, yes, that that was really a key person. Yeah, so I want to go back to to Stannis Baratheon. Uh, Long time listeners will probably their jaws will drop. I, I haven't really asked a, a Stannis centric question yet. We've done multiple Stannis centric. Uh, episodes and he he's kind of this anomaly figure within the fandom as somebody who just people love so much and uh a lot of people hate him uh and he's he's obviously of 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 great there are a few characters who are not point of view characters who are sort of as as central or as important to the plot as stannis and yet like you know with with i I guess with the time lapse between books and all of that 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 these um you know, we, we've been engaging with the, the main series on kind of the same plane for about 10 years now. We haven't gotten new material that kills people off or whatnot. So like a guy like Stannis who, who might die in the next book, he may burn his daughter in the next book, which everybody would hate. Um, but people, people say like, look, Stannis is not going to, Stannis is not 
Azorahai, the prince who was promised. That's clearly John. And people say, like, are you guys crazy for uh, obsessing over this guy? He's clearly not the central character. And yet, I mean, your day, I, I, your study says, you know, it's it's natural that that fans would want to congregate around a character like that who is at the central of so much stuff. Yes, and I think um, we have. Yeah, well, you know, my own experience is kind of uh, reading the books. I kind of now tr- try to avoid getting too attached to anyone because somehow it, it you know, it, it is clear both from your you know, people's impression of reading the books, but also it's sort of backed up by by the analysis that really anyone, uh, you know, the, the 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 end can come quickly, even if you're a very central, seemingly a very central and very key uh, character. Uh, as happened to kind of too many uh, to mention now at, at this stage. So uh, you know, personally, I didn't enga- I didn't find Stannis a particularly engaging character. Uh, for me, he's kind of on the periphery of the story. It's interesting that you say that there, you know he he, he provokes uh, strong uh, opinions either way. But uh, I would certainly say it's it's sort of consistent with the pattern that we've seen in the books up until now. That you know he may go on to do great things, or he may meet a sticky end very suddenly, or he may just spend uh, the rest of his day sitting on, on, on the island that I think he's, he was last on when, if I remember correctly. Well, he's, he's stuck in the snow right now on his way to Winterfell to uh, fight uh, Ramsay Bolton, which will be a, uh, de- however it happens, it'll be, well, presumably how it happens, it'll be a uh, deviation from, uh, from what happened on the show. And I assume, listeners have probably listened to our uh, Stannis in the North episode we did last summer that that plotted all of that uh it, it's fascinating I mean we we uh, you know he more so than perhaps any other character he's like you know this 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 just uh per- figure of of so much uh so many different varying extreme opinions uh on the fandom but there's another character who uh I want to I want to go back to kind of the the realism that your study was mm. uh you know suggesting in in the uh uh with with the with the series and talk about because you know we all have our social networks that um you know kind of stabilize around certain um, there's only so many people you can be really close friends with or or contact with on a daily basis you you know you become like a Walter Frey but um Key to that, I mean, when 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 we fall out of touch with people in our lives, uh, you know, they don't necessarily all die or have grim fates or they're not burned by a dragon or something like Quentin Martell, but um, they leave. And and books like this are not really designed to have sort of graceful exit stage left kind of stuff. You know, you're supposed to, when a character leaves, uh, more often or not, they die. And for somebody like Sandor Clegane, the Hound who we last presumably almost certainly saw sort of living a quiet life in the uh, Quiet Isles as the gravedigger. A big question is, like, this big fan theory that the show uh, rather unfortunately paid homage to is the idea that that he's going to have this big fight with his brother, the mountain that's uh, referred to by fans as, as Clegane Bowl, which I personally find is a really stupid idea. I would love if Sandor Clegane is done with the book, if he doesn't come back, if he just, like, if we get one character who gets to just have a nice quiet ending. And I think that would be really realistic. I think it would be not realistic to, you know, bring this guy back to King's Landing. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, I mean, just looking at how things have played out so far i mean there there isn't really a sense of kind of you know martin's writing doesn't really stick to the rules in terms of fun, finding natural closures for all of the characters for whom you'd ex, that you've, you know you may feel that they're owed something and that seems to be not something that uh, martin himself is particularly um uh, sort of into you know he's not very uh, not very forgiving in this regard but uh, no. I think there's also, um, you know, there's no, with, you know, I think, my, you know, myself, I would really, you know, I kind of had really hoped for the, the Clegane Bowl, I, I have to admit. But if it doesn't <laughs> happen, I think it's sort of consistent with, you know, many of the other things that one wished should have happened, uh, which just were snatched away. And, 
you know, I think the kind of study that we've done, of course, you know, because we're looking at quite a zoomed out uh, sort of view of the overall thing, I think we can't really say much in predictive terms about what we think might happen to any one particular story arc. I guess the main conclusion that we'd have is that, you know, if, if, if what ends up happening takes us by surprise, then that's par for the course. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, like, uh, you know, I was in grad school, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taught to, you know, when, when like, the whole, the whole concept of, of Chekhov's gun, um, something that George R. R. Martin, like, there's all these, uh, pretty much every fan theory of, like, oh, this thing's going to happen to this person, all of that, it's, sometimes it feels like it's reverse engineered to try to explain some of the creative choices that George R. R. Martin makes, but, I mean in terms of just just presenting the the living world of a song of ice and fire sometimes things do happen that don't necessarily oh because this happened that happens and it's it's all hard to discuss when when thinking of a series that uh the central mystery like mystery is at the central uh part of the of the of the books with just the r plus l equals j that that john is not who he says he is and that's just presented so early on so the 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 constant back, you know, the constant struggle between, you know, yes, these theories make sense because look at all of these things that George R. R. Martin has laid out to us. And then also just the, the basic reality that life doesn't really always work that way. Yeah. I think that that could, you know, it may, it may just on touching on this thing about realism. It, you know, I sort of hope that the whole narrative gets drawn together at the end into uh, something resembling a satisfying conclusion for everyone but it may very well be that this just ends up being a you know a slice in time of an ongoing evolution an ongoing story which ends when it ends with many unresolved threads and structurally that's what it you know if the narrative would have ended now there's really no precursor to the ending in 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 the in the kind of analysis that we have done. And it may be that after book six, book seven, book eight, wherever he ends up, um, that really it will just get to a point where it just ends and certain arcs will have been resolved. Others are constantly being created. New characters are constantly entering. Some will find closure. Some won't. Perhaps some may find justice. Others won't. Others perhaps like uh, Sander Clagain, we just won't really know um, definitively what happened. And that, I think, dovetails well with this sense that what's being presented is in some way reflective of reality. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, that's also important to just consider against the backdrop of this final season was so polarizing and, and people were like, oh, you know, this this wasn't set up well, all of that. And, you know, as, as we look to the books, uh you know, certain people who are firm believers in certain theories are, are probably going to be bound for, uh, you know, at least a teensy bit of disappointment. Um, as, as far as a final question goes, as we uh, as we wrap up, um, probably a bit tough to answer. But what, what do you think, like, the big takeaway from from your study for people reading it would, uh, would be? Um, I think that, for me, the big takeaway from this is not so much the things which relate to A Song of Ice and Fire specifically or A Game of Thrones, uh, it's of course interesting and it's part of why this study is engaging for people is because it relates to something which which people care about and which is uh, very much in the, in the public eye. But it wasn't really the purpose of, the stu- of, of this broader research program to specifically study a Song of Ice and Fire. You know, it's an application of an ongoing program of work which I and my colleagues have been involved in to just understand better the structure of both real and mythological narratives and how they work and what makes some narratives relatable, comprehensible and engaging for people, whereas other narratives are not or turn people off and it, there's sort of a an, an obvious sense in which we as human beings really relate to the world through narratives 
And it's important to understand how those narratives work. And there's a sort of a easy observation that we tend to prefer simple narratives, but not every case can be meaningfully reduced to a very simple story. So I think it's important to actually try to understand how more complex narratives work for us and how they can be made engaging. So I think by all means, enjoy this study uh, because it relates to lots of interesting questions that we are uh, find perplexing and uh, engaging about Game of Thrones, but also just remember that underneath it, there's a sort of a bigger uh, scientific question just about how narratives work and how they how, how we use them to relate to the world. Well, I think your study does an excellent job kind of explaining the, the big... Outside people looking in on this series will say, why is this series so much bigger than so many others? And part of it is George R. R. Martin's an excellent writer. He creates fascinating characters, but also he just creates this this world where, uh, you know, millions of fans can swim around in, in, in this material and, and, and spend uh, years of their lives. I traveled to, acad- to academic conferences, to fan conferences... And you meet all these people who are so wildly obsessed with it. So I think your your study does a great job, you know, getting into the heart of the why. And uh, it's been great, great talking with you. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Colm. And uh, to all our listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time, hopefully back in Westeros, sooner than uh, the last time we were here. Bye. (laughs) 